Hello, and welcome back to Law Technology Now. I'm your host. My name is Dan Rodriguez. I'm the Harold Washington Professor and former Dean at Northwestern University's Pritzker School of Law. I'm delighted to uh, welcome two very distinguished lawyers and guests to talk about data privacy, and in particular, California's new Consumer Privacy Act. Today's show is brought to you by our sponsors. Thank you, Logical, instant discovery software for modern legal teams. Logical offers perfectly predictable pricing at just $250 per matter per month. Create your free account anytime at logical.com forward slash LTN. That's logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash LTN. And thank you also to Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. And now on to the show. Delighted to welcome our two guests. First, James Snyder, who's senior counsel with the Kleindance Law Firm. James represents clients in business transactions, M&A, and data privacy and security matters. He's been at the leading edge of data privacy, counseling clients on the European Union's general data protection regulation, as well as the CCPA. He's an accomplished speaker in the fast-evolving data security landscape, and has developed data privacy and security procedures for clients and counseled clients through breaches. James' experience in compliance is not restricted to data protection. He also has directly managed all facets of international regulatory compliance in the highly regulated financial services area. He has also provided guidance on export and open source software compliance initiatives. Also, Timothy Blood is joining us from the Blood, Hurst, and O'Reardon Law Firm. He's represented tens of millions of data breach victims in class action lawsuits, as well as consumers in a wide variety of consumer protection matters. He has fought for consumers in federal and state courts throughout the country and before the Federal Trade Commission, California Department of Justice, the California Legislative Analyst Office, United States Senate, California Legislature, and its Department of Insurance. Tim worked to pass the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018 and help draft the provision of the act that provides consumers with a private right of action for data breaches and testified before the California Senate and Assembly. Welcome, James and Tim. To start us off, I'd like to get a description, and I'm going to ask Tim to take us through the highlights of, of this, new, uh, this new statute, CCPA. So this is uh, truly a landmark piece of legislation. It's the first and, and by far the broadest in the country that uh, provides consumer protections for data privacy and uh, internet security. And it has several different components. Its first component is really a, a right for consumers to know what personal information companies collect on them. And then also a right for consumers to know whether their personal information is sold or disclosed to anybody and whom that information is sold or disclosed. And very importantly, a right to say no to the sale or disclosure of that information. And also companies can't discriminate against people who say no, they don't want their information shared. Also, the Attorney General of the State of California has primary regulatory authority over this statute and has primary enforcement authority, but the CCPA also provides a unique first-in-the-nation private right of action in the event that there is a data breach, so consumers have a direct right to sue companies in the event of a negligent data breach. Great. Thanks. And we'll we'll get into a number of dimensions of this issue, including the enforcement issue. But let me begin, and this is, this is for either or both of you. What are the particular problems to which the CCPA is designed to solve? I think basically the, the concept is in light of things like Cambridge Analytica and, and, and other major sort of developments 
the United States is sort of catching up to Europe in the sense of what consumers or individuals feel should be protected, finally. And so the CCPA is really trying to protect consumers or give, allow them to have information about what information, what data is being collected on any given basis from a particular business. So it's what information is being collected, how is it being used, and with that then gives them the ability to take action if they want and prohibit or prevent businesses from using their information. So before there was a CCPA, that's sort of before now, we had and have within the state of California, within the other, other 49 states and in the United States, a web of laws and regulations and regulatory bureaus and authorities that, that deal with, among other things, data, data privacy to a greater or lesser extent. So Federal Trade Commission, certainly uh, Congress's authority to enact general statutes. I'm not going to list them all, but <laughs> suffice to say, a web and a network of regulatory uh, bureaus and devices. Why wasn't that enough? So I see the problem of, of data breach and, and data privacy being there, but what was missing in our regulatory landscape? There was really, uh, missing was a comprehensive way of addressing all of these problems. You know, for example, California in the mid-1970s passed uh, and added to its constitutional a very strong right to privacy. And of course, privacy has been an American ideal for a very, very long time since really the founding of our nation. But especially with the advent of technology, online presence, there has been nothing that has existed that has really fits that particular unique set of circumstances that the digital age brings with it. And so nobody was really doing anything because it's a pretty big undertaking to take on really the largest tech companies in the world, some of the largest companies in the world, and the tremendous commercial advantages that online data and its use bring with it. So it was you know, politically a, a big undertaking to even take on something like the CCPA in a comprehensive way. Yet, you also had a, an overwhelming pent-up public desire to address it. So a lot of people viewed online privacy, rated it very highly as something very, very important to them. Not everybody understands it. In fact, most people don't understand it, but they have a sense that something wasn't quite right. And so really, so what ended up happening with the CCPA was a Bay Area billionaire decided to pass an initiative, Alistair McTaggart. So he introduced a, an initiative that he very carefully crafted, took the temperature of many different stakeholders be, uh, when putting it together, and put it on the California ballot. Well, that ballot polled so well that sort of all the tech company money in the land, based on polling, indicated that it could not be defeated. And so what they did, along with the Consumer Attorneys of California, which is a plaintiff's trade association, approached Alistair and said, hey, would you like to make a legislative deal? It saves everyone a lot of money. We have much more certainty. And we, uh, we all can, uh, can sort of refine what ultimately became the CCPA. Alistair agreed to do that. And it was only, I think, because of Alistair's threat of an initiative that was going to pass that resulted in the California legislature passing the CCPA. Now, not only did it pass the, the California legislature, but it passed the California legislature unanimously. There was not a single no vote. And uh, I, I dare say that if the CCPA had been introduced the regular way, then what probably would have happened is it wouldn't have gotten out of one or more committees and we'd never have the CCPA. Well, that's, that's so interesting. And, and just on a, on a minor tangent, 
Of course, the story that you describe has so much to do with not entirely unique, but somewhat unique features of how lawmaking is done in California and a number of states, uh, more often found in the West, right, through direct uh, direct initiatives. And it's very, very interesting. So, so just on that subject then, so this tech billionaire, as you described him, and what muscle he was able to bring to bear, does that portend some significant legislative changes in other states now as a result? Does he have a desire and do others have a desire to, to expand the scope of, of this across? Uh, across other states? So Alistair is actually a developer, not a tech guy. He's oh, just, sorry. Uh, I said billionaire. I just assume all the billionaires are tech billionaires. But exactly. Certainly yeah. in California. So he's, he, right. he's a developer who had really nothing to do with technology before this. And he was having dinner with an, a Google employee and was absolutely shocked to find out how much private information was available to companies in the United States without anybody's control. And, and that's how the initiative, the idea of the initiative started. And to answer your question, so I think the circumstances were somewhat unique in California, as you suggest, the direct initiative process in California, and and just the size and the heft of California means that, you know, if California passes legislation like this, it it doesn't just cause a ripple across the country, it really causes a tsunami. So there are other states and Congress that are looking at doing things similar to the CCPA, and large companies, including companies like Microsoft, have agreed to comply with the CCPA nationwide, even though they're not legally obligated to do so. So not just in California, but all over the country. Yeah, I think it's something like 20 plus states right now either have enacted or are in the process of enacting something along the line. So, yeah. Interesting. What do you make of, I, I just, something came across my desk just from uh, Adweek just the other day, where this, uh, the CEO, founder of a video online platform, ad platform uh, called SpotX, made a comment, this, the title of the article is, Why CCPA Won't Be As Big of a Deal as GDPR. And he suggests in this interview, essentially because it's one state and, and it's not as far-reaching that it's not, not likely to have an enormous uh, impact. Is there anything to that? Personally, I don't think so. I think there's a report, actually, I just read this morning from Compliance Weekly, uh, where the estimated, you know, something around from $467 million to $16.5 billion in implementation costs by the year 2030, to give you a sense. I mean, you're talking about probably 50 to 75% of all businesses in the state of California, which is obviously the biggest, you know, the biggest populous um, state in, in the union, uh, are going to be impacted by this. So, okay. and we're not just talking about businesses with online presence, right? I mean, you know, you've got mom and pops that have a coffee shop and they're collecting credit cards. If 14 transactions or so a day is going to get you probably up to a threshold where your business is covered by the CCPA. So I think it's really, really broad. And it's not just going to be California-based businesses, right? I mean, Really, we're in a global world now. So you've got you've got European businesses that are you know marketing to California residents, consumers that might actually be traveling in Europe. They're still it's still applicable. So I think it's very far reaching. If a company does business with a California company, then that business may have to comply as a contractual matter with the CCPA if it does business with the California company. And, and we've already seen that with the GDPR, where companies that do business with companies that are regulated by the GDPR also have to often comply with aspects of the GDPR. Same, well, same is true with uh, CCPA. I want to I turn to GDPR in a moment, but just, just to reinforce what was just said about compliance and all that, I saw a report from PwC that they did a survey. You may have seen the same report. And it, remarkably, it said one-fifth of all businesses indicated that they would be spending uh, upwards of more than $100 million and adding 50 staff just to comply with the provisions of CCPA. 
which is really remarkable. So it's come up a couple times, including the introduction. This so this GDPR, General Data Protection uh, Regulation, enacted in uh, in Europe uh, recently. How is CCPA different? Is this just modeled directly after the GDPR? What's the what are the salient differences between this statute and and uh, European regulation? There's definitely a lot of similarities, certainly, and you know many have have touted CCPA to be. America's GDPR, but but there are differences. I mean, one of the main differences is GDPR is an opt-in regime and CCPA is an opt-out in the sense that under CCPA, businesses need to inform consumers about what information is being collected and give them the information and then allow them the ability to say, no, don't do that or give me my information back. Whereas in Europe, you actually have to agree explicitly to have anything collected. So that's a pretty defining difference. Um, you know, the, Obviously, there's the, you know, the concept of private rights of action and the rest of it with respect to breaches that is more far-reaching than, than even GDPR, which is interesting. So in many ways, and, and you know, there's the concept of personal information itself is actually quite quite much, much more broad under CCPA, in my estimation, than under GDPR. So it actually, I think, is is a more challenging law, probably, in some ways, to comply with and more protective of, of consumers or individuals um, than even GDPR. Let me press you on that on that point about the opt-in, opt, uh, opt-out, because one thing we know from what we all receive and consumers receive, whether you're talking about shrink wrap licenses or what we used to call in the olden days contracts of adhesion and all all that is that consumers rarely read the fine print. We click uh, constantly on, you know, just to get to the next page and e- even when the information is provided provided before us. We know that about human nature, consumer behavior and the like. So is there a concern or do you have a concern that in some sense, maybe because of the opt-out nature of CCPA, the vast majority of consumers won't pay any attention. We'll just see this as, as again, like shrink wrap licenses, something that is just not worth their time, in which case their, their privacy is, I mean, maybe you say they're voluntarily taking that chance, but their privacy won't be protected. Yeah, I think it, it's entirely possible. But I think that uh, to really comply with CCPA at, at its core, just for using an example of a website, every single website page needs to have a link basically at the bottom or somewhere on the website that allows a consumer to have information as to how what information is being collected from them and how to opt out. So we're not really seeing a lot of businesses do this yet. If you're on the internet, you're not seeing this yet. But this is it's coming, and it is a requirement. So I think more and more it's going to have consumers become more aware of, oh, you, what information really are you collecting about me, and how long have you been collecting that, and who are you giving it to? And I think it's just going to sort of bolster um, the opportunity to have a conversation about it. And, and I think it will grow from there, in my opinion. And I think that's right. I mean, from uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a consumer protection advocate, so I, I think the opt-out feature, the CCPA, is you know, by far its biggest flaw. And you're absolutely right. It's not a matter of not caring. It's a matter of being busy doing other things in their lives to dig in and, and actually opt out. You know, and, and, and for some websites, it's more difficult than others to opt out. It can be very confusing. I personally spend a bunch of time opting out of things, mm. in large part because I'm curious about it. And some are very confusing. But that's gonna, going to change over time. I think it's going to get easier and more straightforward. And as the CCPA is around us all the time, a lot more people are going to become more educated about it. And people really do need to be more generally educated about online privacy and what's really at stake, because most people today still do not have a fine appreciation of, a, of what's at risk. They know something's out there. They know something's wrong. They don't like it, but they're not quite sure what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, I, I think just to kind of add to this, I mean, there are some practical nuances that 
we sort of have to think through. Uh, you know, there's a concept of, of a cookie, right? It's a small file stored on a user's computer, a consumer's computer, as, as it were, that helps basically you not have to fill in your password maybe or, or your username. Or, and it, but it also tracks you, and those are used and sold. Um, it's personal information. And in, in many cases, they're technically required. There's, there's instances where the website just won't work if, you don't, if the cookies aren't collected. So you may have the ability to opt out, and that's fine. But you may not be able to use the service either. And there's in some instances, that may be because the, the business is prohibiting your use. And we can talk about that a little bit more in terms of being discriminated against. But in some cases, just technically it breaks. It doesn't work. So, you know, there are some things we, we sort of have to, you know, accept, I guess, to a certain extent in terms of what information really can be opted out of in order to use the service we're looking to use online. Much more to discuss. Before we move on, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsors. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls due to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. 10 years ago, e-discovery meant lawyers packed into a basement, fumbling with complex, slow software, wondering where their lives had gone wrong. Today, much of that frustration remains, but fortunately, there's logical. Not e-discovery, but instant discovery. Logical's intuitive cloud-based software makes document search and review easy, fast, and affordable. It's time to get out of the basement. Create a free account instantly any time of day at logical.com forward slash LTN. That's logic with a K. C-U-L-L dot com forward slash LTN. And we're back. I'm here with James Snyder and Tim Blood talking about the CCPA and data privacy. So one of you at the, at, at, at the, at the beginning of the show talked about one of the motivations behind uh, CCPA being greater concern with data privacy and, of course, the debacle involving Cambridge Analytica. But I want to push on that because it's, it's still not clear to me how the CCPA, if at all, solves that dilemma. And so let's, let's dig into that, particularly in connection with Facebook. So here you have a company, Facebook, where free service is offered in exchange for marketing information and ad platform. So the question I want to ask first is, if consumers opt out, can they be denied that free service? I don't think they can be denied. I think that would be uh, in violation of the anti-discrimination provisions of the CCPA. Because, of course, Facebook is not actually free. Facebook wouldn't exist if it was free. What they are doing is they are allowing you to use the Facebook platform, but they are getting in return an enormous amount of personal information about you. And that personal information is really the payment for that access to the platform. From my vantage point, I think the devil's in the details. I, my clients are, are, tend to be, you know, not Facebook, but companies like Facebook, technology companies. And I, I agree in the sense that if, if there's a discrimination and there's a benefit, there's consideration, essentially, they're, they're using the data, um, then I totally agree with Tim. I think you know, it's going to be case-by-case specific if there's some sort of you know, free service that's being offered and it's, it, there's no data being collected or it's all, it's all aggregated, which is all exempt from, under the 
under the CCPA. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I think it's interesting. Um, it's something to, for companies to think through. But I, I think certainly companies shouldn't rest on their laurels and think there's some sort of safe harbor you know, because it's a free service. I think that would be a mistake. Well, of course, the, the, the ambiguity or the uncertainty could be resolved, couldn't it, if part of the proposed regulations were right in the period, right, of, sure. of regulations could, could answer this question definitively. So I'm sort of curious why, why this wasn't uh, wrestled to the ground, if not in the statute, then, then in the proposed regs. Well, you know, I, I think with the statute, I mean, statutes being statutes, they are by their very nature of general applicability. And you have a statute overlaid in an area that is exceedingly complex and also ever-changing. I mean, the, the technology that exists today is far different than the technology that was used five years ago, and that's going to continue. And so the regulations become exceedingly important, and they can also become very complex because they'll need to address a whole host of different situations. And you know, the best regulations will address future applications of technology. But those regulations over time are going to need to be updated. They're going to need to be revised. They're going to need to be expanded to to address, you know, things that people writing the regulations have not yet thought about. Yeah. And if I can just add on to that, I think, you know, it's important to note that the act was put into place in, I think, seven days. I mean, it was, it was very, very quickly written and enacted, if I'm if I'm memory serves. And with that, there were a whole slew of typos and you know errors in, in the actual act itself, and then you know, a string of amendments after the fact. And in, in some ways, um, you know, a lot of things were were proposed and either either died or or didn't make it before the end of the session. But but I think you'll I think in my estimation you'll see more changes um, in in the next session, if not for anything else than just to clean up errors and typos that still remain. And, and I suspect you'd both agree that just because. Uh, big tech, as it were, held their powder in the legislative debate. You, you said it was passed unanimously. Doesn't mean that they're in any way reticent or reluctant to engage in the political process as amendments are introduced, as regulations are proposed, and all of that, right? Yeah, that's right. And in fact, last year, there were a very large number of proposed bills, mostly by business, that sought to change the CCPA. For the most part, those bills were unsuccessful. It was really just some narrow sort of cleanup issues. But the you know business community is going to continue to try to undercut the CCPA, I think. I mean, we'll continue to see that. That's the way the legislative process is. It's one of the big advantages to them of an initiative not being passed, because if an initiative was passed, it, it is exceedingly difficult to change a California voter-passed initiative um, as opposed to a law that just passes the legislative process. But there's actually another initiative that Alistair McTaggart mm-hmm. is introducing that further refines the CCPA, and uh, that's going to be on the 2020 ballot. So we'll see what happens with that. I think overall it's a it, it's a better version of the CCPA from a technical standpoint that in that sense should give businesses some comfort, even if they're not necessarily comfortable with the content of the act. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's, it is challenging for businesses really in, in this political climate to come out you know, against data privacy, right? It's, it's, it's just sort of, it's not really um, PC and it's, I don't think it benefits businesses. You're not going to see, you know, Facebook come out and lobby outwardly to not, um, not protect people's data, right? That, that would just be bad business for Facebook. So I, it's, it's a, it's a fine line for them. And, you know, I, the other thing I'd say is, you know, from my standpoint, given that I, I represent usually technology companies, I see practical nuances where businesses 
should probably get on board protecting more data than than less for you know obvious reasons you know such as dat you know preventing data breaches and which can be very expensive and can essentially bankrupt um, you know a, a midsize or startup technology company before it really gets off the ground. But in, in addition to that, you know I, I help a lot of clients just negotiate with their customers you know, the software agreement maybe as an example and you know a lot of if they're trying to do business with a big technical company as an example um, those companies flow down security requirements and you have to comply with certain standards ISO and SOC 2 etc around fin- financial um, information uh, all you know post Sarbanes-Oxley and I think you're going to see the same sort of standards be implemented in probably the next couple of years with respect to data privacy um, and they're going to be flowed down from the big companies because these companies want to do business with them. So I think it's just a, you know, starting to do it now is just, it's just good business. And, you know, in addition to that, obviously there's, you know, you're protecting consumers, you know, data, which, you know, it's good business and you can market it that way. So I, I think there are some practical nuances on both sides where it benefits the consumers. And I think it benefits businesses to sort of thinking ahead and implementing, you know, stringent requirements as they can. We're already seeing that start to happen in Europe with the GDPR, right? Mm-hmm. The voluntary standards and absolutely and, and efforts. P- people want it, and so you know, naturally, whenever there's a new law put into place, especially something as complex as this, you know, right now we are living through the greatest time of uncertainty and cost. But you know, eventually we're going to work through all these uncertainties and the sort of fixed cost aspect of this, and it's going to become normalized, and it, and nobody will be really complaining so much about. Uh, compliance with the CCPA. So the you know the challenge, of course, as with any big law be going into effect, is is getting through the implementation stage. Right, right. And I think right now, just to just to add to that real quick, I think right now it's tougher on smaller businesses, you know, because I think you know big businesses has they they have the resources to sort of you know, throw at this, and they can eat the cost up front, and and over time it's just easier for them. So I think small businesses and, and also technology st- startups um, or late stage startups, which we have a lot of them in California, it's going to be harder on them initially. But I think over time, what you're seeing is these third party vendors that are coming out that are providing solutions now that I think will drive the cost down. I don't think you know probably in the next couple of years the the cost of implementation is going to exponentially be diminished. So, so I think we're getting there. Um, and you know, eventually it'll be a lot easier to sort of, you know, comply with the law. So this, this, the conversation we've been having exists in the shadow of uncertainty also about enforcement. I'm also struck from what I've read is that the, the attorney generals will slow out of the gate, right? In the first few months in exercising enforcement uh, prerogatives. Is that, first of all, is that a correct description? And second, why is that? If, if so, uh, why is that? I want to turn to the private right of action in a moment, but just f- focusing on the on implementation and enforcement at the at the AG's level, what are we seeing? Sure. So, so the uh, so the AG has had about a year, and then they're going to have another six months to both come up with regulations. And and during the first six months of of 2020, there is a no enforcement period, and then enforcement is scheduled pursuant to the CCPA to start taking effect after July 1. In practice, that's not really going to happen. The AG, like any government agency, has a set budget. They have been given a very small amount of money to do everything that they are obligated to do under the CCPA, which is a lot. But the reality is they have only a couple of people dedicated to the CCPA, and they're really busy with coming up with regulations and working through the initial implementation, and really no money for enforcement. And that's likely not going to change in any significant way for the foreseeable future. So I, I think there's a big question about whether there will we will see any AG enforcement whatsoever 
of the CCPA other than maybe sort of you know, really dramatic sort of, you know, a poster child of a bad actor. Yeah, Cambridge Analytica in California, which we all hope exactly. doesn't, doesn't right. happen. Yeah. So that gets us to the just a very unique, unusual feature of this statute, which is private right of action, right? The ability of consumers to go to directly to court. So I, I notice, again, you, you read the fine print. It is a private right of action, but but it's it's also capped, right, in terms of damages and, and pretty severely. So tell us what your, your hopes and dreams are with respect to this private right of action and uh, how you think that will affect uh, enforcement. So this only applies to data breach cases. So when there's a data breach case like the Equifax case, something like that, or the target data breach or any of the other number of data breaches that we've seen. And data breach cases are really unique animals. They've been around for quite a while now and and mostly in federal court. And what we have seen is years and years and years of litigation over things like whether the plaintiff has standing to sue in federal court to even bring the claim. And then if they can bring the claim, what is the cause of action? we are slowly moving towards some degree of uniformity with regard to what cause of action somebody could even bring, although that varies from circuit to circuit and in some ways, in some places, district court to district court, about whether somebody has any cause of action and if so, what that cause of action is. And that's before you even get to issues like, can you get a class certified and what the remedies are? So the CCPA is designed to solve a lot of those really vexing problems. So it provides for statutory damages or actual damages, whatever is greater. Does it solve all the standing issues? Are the standing issues uh, pretty straightforward? Yeah, so this should solve the standing issues because now the legislature has said, yes, people are harmed and we are providing a statutory remedy to address that specific harm. So that should be sufficient to provide standing in federal court where a lot of these cases are going to end up. It's certainly sufficient in the Ninth Circuit, the Seventh Circuit, a number of those circuits. And then even in the more challenging circuits, this should be enough to confer Article Three standing on the litigant. Assuming no continuing tightening up of standing requirements by the, by the Supreme Court, which is a whole whole nother conversation. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but you know, it was, I mean, we, we, we drafted it to specifically address issues with the Spokeo Supreme Court case, which, you know, essentially says if it's statutory damages that are untethered to any actual harm, they're just a penalty then there's no Article Three standing. But there's plenty in the CCPA that answers that question. And so under, under Supreme Court precedence, you know, we'll see. But I think it's, there's a very strong likelihood that federal courts will find that, that a plaintiff would have standing. Well, let me, let me ask you about the, the issue the other way around. And one of you noted the, uh, the fact that they're not all big te- tech companies we're talking about here. Some are so-called mom and pop operations. Does the private right of action and, and, the, and the penalties that, that, are, that are provided risk really going overboard, putting a lot of these, uh, these mom and pop operations at real risk for what might be uh, negligent, but you know, it's not Cambridge Analytica. It's, it's you know, an honest mistake. I mean, two comments to that. One is the private right of action only applies to companies that are that have gross revenues of $25 million or more. Oh, okay, well, that answers and, that question, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and then effectively uh, data aggregators. So it, it prevents a, a company from starting a small spinoff with, with low revenues, but that's what they're Got in the it. business of doing. So no, so that shouldn't be a problem. Now, could the damage amounts get very, very large in a large data breach and, and threaten the viability of the company? In theory, yes. However, having a statutory penalty or statutory damage provision in a statute is nothing unique to the CCPA. Those provisions have been around for a very, very long time. Um, In the data protection realm, California has the Medical Information Act, which provides for $5,000 per violation 
damages. And we have not seen any medical providers go out of business in the event of a data breach in the medical field, in the medical arena. So both litigants and courts have a long history of dealing with those sorts of issues in a, in a very reasonable, I think, responsible manner that prevents companies from actually being wiped out. It ends up being sort of a chamber of commerce talking point, if you will, but nothing more. Yeah, and the, and the other thing is that there is a cure period offered un, un, under the act, um, which doesn't necessarily alleviate you know damages necessarily. But but you know the point is that if there if there's a, uh, some sort of issue that consumer is is raising and and the as an example aside from a breach, let's say a business isn't producing the the information that the consumer is asking for, the business does have a thirty day period by which to cure its defect you know, under the act. And in addition to that, there's also you know, requirements to verify that somebody is who, who they say they are when they're asking for data. And that's obviously important because we're talking about confidentiality and personal information. So I think that it's going to be an interesting nuance in the law as well, or in the progress in the law and in how things are actually happening in practice. Because I think you're going to see, in some ways, you're going to see some businesses kind of drag their feet and abuse this, you know, verifiable request procedure, which is not really described very well under the act anyway. And in, in other cases, I think it's, you're going to find that people just give up. Um, I think probably is practical. So it's kind of an aside from what we were talking about, but I think those nuances with, you know, how long the, a business has to sort of provide the information first off. And then, you know, if they don't do it, then they're given an opportunity to fix what they didn't do as well. And then only, only then is there really, you know, going to are there going to be damages? Um, you know, unless we're talking about a breach, which is different. So let me ask one last question to the both of you, just taking the lens a little bit back from the details of the statute, which is a, a statute passed by by one state, uh, a massive state to be sure, but just one state. Is it your prediction? And do you think that we're going to see federal legislation? And if we see federal legislation dealing with these issues, is it going to look a lot like CPA? Is it going to be different? Uh, will there be a period of time of experimentation to see how things work out in California? What, what do we see in terms of the landscape of data protection throughout the United States, whether in different states or, or at legislation at a federal level? Well, I, I think it is entirely possible, and, and it's really my hope, that the CCPA ends up effectively becoming the law of the land, even if it's not specifically the law of the land. And I would liken it to California emission standards, which are higher than the federal standards, but yet followed by auto companies across the country. And up until recently, really more for political reasons than anything else, it has worked very well. Now, that said, there are various bills and hearings being held on this very issue on Capitol Hill. Where those go, it's really, I think, at this point, anyone's guess. Is it going to be legislation that is aimed at preempting and curtailing consumer protections and, and privacy protections, or is it going to be something more like the CCPA that just adopts a standard nationwide? I think given the political climate, I, I think it is unlikely to be a federal version of the CCPA, but that also increases the chance, uh, like we've seen a lot with a lot of legislation over the last number of years, of just nothing happening coming out of Congress. But really, that's the big question mark. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, again, to hit on the point earlier, there's 20 plus states right now that have either enacted or are enacting 
some semblance of data privacy um, regulations. None of none of which have been quite as stringent as CCPA, but there have been some. New York is an example that didn't didn't go through, but it was it was much more far reaching actually than CCPA. So um, you could see states that go even beyond possibly. And I think you know there's a lot of really good reason from the business community standpoint to have one standard, and and whether that's you know CCPA. Or whether it's a federal standard that you know matches CCPA, I think it actually behooves business, the business community, to have a standard so they know what rules to follow. And and I, I think in, in terms of you know the political climate, I just don't see big big technology outwardly going against data privacy. I think it's bad business. And you know I, if you, you've seen Facebook you know, with the FTC in the last year, heavy fines, of course, you know a, a pittance given the annual revenues of Facebook, but still, I mean, large sums of money related to data breaches. So, you know, I think that that will continue, and I think there probably will be some poster children for CCPA, you know, in the next, well, in in the near term. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our time together for this episode. I want to thank James Snyder and Tim Blood for being our uh, guests on this fascinating episode. If our listeners have questions or wish to follow up, James, first, how can they reach you? Yeah, I can be reached at jsnyder at kleindenselaw.com that's j-s-n-y-d-e-r at k-l-i-n-e-d-i-n-s-t-l-a-w.com and I can be reached at tblood at b-h-o-law.com that's b-h-o for blood herson o'reardon law.com great thank you and thanks to our listeners for tuning in if you like what you've heard please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts Spotify or your favorite podcasting app Until next time, this has been Dan Rodriguez on Law Technology Now. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.